How you doing, man? Doing good. I'm excited to have you here. I've met you recently through First Tuesday Club, and I've met you in the past before, but you know, not officially. Yeah, I think it was in passing at Melrose McQueen yeah. years ago. And I think you you might have thrown me out of a bar once. <laughs> if it was around this part of town and you got thrown out, it might have been me. It might have been you. Yeah. <laughs> so I apologize. Well, I probably need to be thrown out. So give me a little introduction about who you are and what you do. Yeah. So I own Village Fitness EAV with a gentleman named Brandon Richardson, a partner. I have been working in the fitness industry on and off since 2008, did some other things in between, i.e. security, but got really serious about training folks about seven or eight years ago after I lost a really high level security gig and decided to kind of change directions because that's pretty much the apex of where I was going to get in that industry. And... Started from the ground up, got a job working at Lifetime up in Sandy Springs, started working with clients and I still have two of them today. Yeah. That I got in 2016. It's nice to have those long-term clients. My industry, I still have a few that I've done for almost a decade now and I still do their hair and I'm like, you still trust me? Yeah. So that's actually something I wanted to talk about today is. I have heavy amounts of imposter syndrome because I don't really think or understand why people want to continue coming back to me for guidance, training, friendship, whatever. I just don't really do it. It's like, what is endearing about this? Why do you like this so much? Cause I, I probably wouldn't like me. <laughs> I think imposter syndrome exists in every single industry. I can't speak for everybody, but. From the people that I talk to, from clients to interviews now, everybody has imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I was just talking about this with a friend last week who he has landed a great gig traveling the country, recording audio, and it's like a dream gig for him. He said he's just waiting for them to find out that he's a fraud. He's yeah. just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I said, man, like everybody thinks that. You just have imposter syndrome and I think everybody deals with it. And you know what? Just, I deal with it. I'm just going until they find out that I don't know how to do hair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now I'm 15 years into it and I'm still getting paid and still enjoying what I do. Yeah. But I think you got to figure out how to deal with it in your own way, in your, in your own industry, because you know, everyone's dealing with it. So. Is it just your long-term clients that make you feel like you have imposter syndrome? I mean, I would say that they're part of the solution. I'm like, yeah. you keep coming back. So it's obvious that I'm not, I think there's a healthy way to deal with it. And I think there's an unhealthy way to deal with it. And I do both. Unfortunately, I think the healthy way is looking at the circumstance and going, okay, people come back to me. They obviously like me for whatever reason, they obviously trust what I do and see progress and whatever. 
And then the unhealthy way, which I have a tendency to do, and I feel like probably a lot of people do, is to look around and go, oh, this is what other trainers do? They're terrible. Okay, I should be very confident in what I, I do because it's better than that. And that's a little bit narcissistic and a little bit judgmental. So you have to be careful about how much you rely on that, I feel like. Do you think that is the way to overcome imposter syndrome? You do have to compare yourself to other people and you do have to list your strengths. I think that the healthy way to be able to deal with it is to have a sense of, a strong sense of self, to not care if people enjoy what you do or not, because you enjoy it. And generally, if you don't care about stuff, positive thing. Like in, in a certain sense, if you don't, if you're not hyper anxious and overly critical and self-deprecating, probably going to be pretty good at what you do. I find that a lot of times in life, negative emotions are self-propagating. If you think something bad is going to happen enough, you're going to unintentionally create that situation. Totally. And so I've, especially of late recently tried to just let thoughts like that kind of come and go, because you're not going to be able to eliminate them. You're not a robot. Nobody's a robot, but kind of let them come and go and passing. Okay. I feel that I understand it. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Here's why. And that's why it's not going to happen. Here's what is probably going to happen. There's this extreme negative spiral and there's an extreme positive outlook and probably somewhere in the middle, hopefully closer to the positive side. Yeah. I mean, with imposter syndrome, it's inevitable that it's going to happen. But not giving a shit is easy to say, but harder to do. Yep. And, but the least, the less you care about what other people think, the least that imposter syndrome is going to affect you. And if you think, hey, you know what? I am an imposter or I'm not, whatever. If one person talks shit about it or talks shit about me, so what? Yep. You got to let it roll off you. And I find that the more I put myself out there, either on like social media, or even afraid to speak up, even in like men's groups, the thing that would hold me back in the past would be like caring what other people think. But in reality, the negative feedback that you actually get is either non-existent or so small that you know, the positives way outweigh the negatives. Yeah. Your concept of how much people are criticizing you is generally a lot greater than what the reality of that truly is. So many people are so stuck in their own head criticizing themselves, they don't have time to criticize you. So everybody's doing the same thing, looking around going, oh, who's, who hates me? The answer is me. The answer is always me. Yeah. And that's just about it. Yep. So. I think there's these imaginary trolls in our head that we think if we put something out there that the world is just going to shit on it. There might be, you might be lucky enough to get a troll to actually shit on you in the comment, <laughs> but so what? Generally that's because you're important enough for people to pay attention to. So that might be true. Probably a positive way to look at that. <laughs> yeah. I welcome the day that I have a hater. And when that, when, if something actually happened where you put something out there and someone was hating on it. Shouldn't you feel like a little accomplished? Yeah. Okay. At least you put something out there mm -hmm. for the world to hate yep. and you didn't question whether you did something or not. Yeah. I mean, you feel like emotions are pretty polar. And so if people really like something, there's going to be somebody that really doesn't and vice versa. And so if you can create a, any, anything, if you can create, literally create anything, whether it's tangible or intangible, that gets a positive and negative response out of people. 
a high level of emotion attached to it, then you have created something genuine and you've created something that the world probably needs. Hmm. So it's a great way to look at it. So you now have owned Village Fitness for how long? About a year and a half. Yeah. What was the process like buying a gym? Why did you want to open a gym? It was the most miserable thing I've ever had in my life. What made it miserable? So I started process in 2018, looking at buying a gym in Buckhead that was in a similar vein of Village Fitness and the owner wanted to sell it. My wife at the time and I wanted to buy a gym. It was our goal. It's when we first met, that was what we wanted to do. And it was the gym we were both working at and we had a financial backer at the time. And so we went into the process, come to find out he was cooking all his books. He wasn't making any money and we backed out. The gym was it? Yeah. The gym that we initially wanted to purchase in Buckhead. Okay. And so we forgot about that. And about six months later, I was, I've been a member at Village Fitness for years because I was one of the original members. And then I worked there as the manager in 2014, 2015, and they just let my membership remain free for life because I made them a bunch of money. So I was in there one day and I was just sitting down on the couch and I was prepping for a bodybuilding show because I was still competing. And I just looked at the owner's daughter, who was the manager at the time and said, you guys think about selling this thing? Kevin, they're getting old. And she was like, actually, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk. And so we sat down in October of 2019 and started looking at the books, looking at all the profit loss statements, working logistics on how the purchase would go, figuring out where we wanted to go with it. And we realized that we needed to get an SBA loan to do it. Okay. And SBA loans are like conventional home loans on steroids. They're just miserable to get through. I can talk about my experience with an SBA loan, which is why I'm so interested in your experience with it. So we got in, we were applying for SBA 7A loans. We'd been working on it for a couple of months. Now January, 2020, and we're starting to talk to banks and they're interested, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of prerequisites. The absolute minimum is 20% down, plus all these fees, plus the underwriting process is an absolute bear, plus they're going to want collateral, plus you're going to have to have really good credit, like really good credit, not just pretty good credit and no debt. And I remember at one point. When we actually did get into the purchase process deep into it, I couldn't even have a single overdraft for three years on my checking account. Like not one. Right. Just crazy stuff. And luckily I have overdraft protection. I <laughs> probably would have had a couple of them, but just wacko stuff. And so talking to these banks, January, 2020, and right around March, they all come back and say, yeah, we're about to be handing out loans and we're done with business loans, especially gyms. Wow. So talk to us in a year, maybe if you're lucky. And at the time, the purchase price was like close to a million dollars. And it was based on the valuation of the building and the membership and the equipment, all that kind of stuff. So I just stepped away from that, poked around for a good year. And then my current business partner came to me and he goes, hey, man, I want to buy a gym. I want to build a gym in Inman Park. And I looked at him and I said, that's a really bad idea, dude, because there's a ton of them already. And rent's going to be sky high. And when you start fresh, you have no idea what's mm-hmm. going to happen. And we're post pandemic and we don't know what's going to happen with the laws, which is not a good idea. Right. But I was trying to buy a gym last year. Maybe he's still interested in selling. Went back to him, cut the price down in half. Whoa. And so we went through the process. We started it. Do you think that was because of COVID? Okay. He lost about 40% of his business. Okay. And so he cut the price in half, which was a good deal. It was yeah. a good deal. And so start the process with banks. Realized the first time we were working with banks, all these large corporate banks were 
not going to want to work with us because they deal in loans that are millions of dollars, not hundreds of thousands. They don't want to work with small fries. So we went with it like a small North Carolina based credit union. And the benefit of that is we had a lot of close attention, but the downside of that is they were massively unorganized and I was literally having to teach them how to do their underwriting math for them because they couldn't do it, which is just infuriating. Like, why are you getting, why are you the vice president of a bank making a quarter million dollars a year and you can't do simple calculations to figure out if I have the proper mathematics to work this deal? It just really upset. I've got the emails to show where I've corrected them. (laughs) And they didn't like that too much, but whatever. That's scary. So. So yeah, right. And it was literally like four months of sending the same hundred documents six times over and over again. So you deal with an underwriter and then you, you deal with a vice president of banking and then you deal with their underwriter and then you deal with lawyers and then you deal with more lawyers and then you deal with this person and that person. And each time they don't have the organizational skills to be able to hand over their packet of documents. So they want it from me again. Or if something is, they told me exactly how to do it. I followed it to the T and then they come back and say, I actually wanted it like this. Go start it over, get it re-notarized, send it again. And so it was literally that just for months. And then at the end, the previous owner had done some wacky crap with his taxes and didn't want to disclose it. And that could have killed the deal. Yeah. But they, some stuff like they knew of it, they were aware of it, they probably hadn't given out a business loan in a while and needed some money and we're like, well, we're just going to deal with this. And so that's how it happened. And it was a nightmare all the way up to the finish line, all yep. the way, even seven days past closing, it still wasn't closed. Wow. Because there were just some loose ends to be tied up and it was really frustrating. So it's a good thing that you got it through and then it actually worked out. I'm happy it worked out for you. In 2021, me and my wife were looking at buying a building through an SBA loan and opening up a studio, a photography studio. And with the SBA route and everything that you're saying, I can relate to because it was a nightmare. Like we jumped through so many hoops, sent in so many documents, resend in documents, talked in circles with these two banks and it was a nightmare. And we got to the point to where we were got the green light to go under contract with buying this building and then to find out that they pulled the plug on it and looking back on it, I was like, okay, it was for the best that didn't work out because this church came up and I didn't buy it, but I was able to open up my business in here. And I couldn't have done that if we were trying to build the studio, but it was a nightmare and it's a shame that it is that hard for small businesses to get loans like that. Yep. Because I love the concept of buying a business through an SBA process, but unless you, it sounds like you were able to do it because you had an investor with you. Me and my partner went in, he was more of a capital investor and I was more of a collateral investor. Right. So I put less capital down, but put my house up. And so, and then because the gym was existing and had existing equipment, that equipment was also taken in consideration as cap or as as collateral. Right. So, and then obviously it was making money, albeit not as much as it used to and not as much as it does now. So it it passed all the check marks, right? A new business, like you've got a business plan. Cool. There's no guarantee Mm. that you're going to hit those metrics. You might absolutely crush them. You may never touch them. Right. So for me, I had 12 years of reliable metrics, save for one seven month period where a bunch of people quit. And then they all in inevitably came back. Right. So. 
One thing the whole process did teach me though, was to be able to speak that language a little better, talking to banks, talking to bankers about what does an appropriate profit loss statement look like? How can you actually, I love that. Assets? I love that. Cause they're like, they come to you and they're like, all right, we need all this stuff. And you're like, okay, how do I do that? And they're like, oh yeah, you're gonna have to figure it out. Kind of like doing your taxes. Like you owe us money. How much? We don't know. We do know, but we're not mm -hmm. going to tell you. Okay. How do I figure it out? Ah, you're going to have to do it yourself. Right. And if you're wrong, you go to jail. Yeah. I was fortunate during this process that I, I had a business coach at the time and I brought him in on those phone calls with me, which made me look a little bit more legitimate than I was. And he was there to be CC'd on those emails to be like, yeah, you should make it look like this. You should say it like this. And it got me really far in the process, but it is a whole nother language if that's not your world. And it was a huge learning process for me. And I, I think if I was to approach it again, I would go the route of having a capital investor with me being a collateral investor. Yeah. And so that's, I think a private bank loan or just an, a liquidated, just cash purchase with an investor is a way better way to go. Or if you're buying an existing business owner, financing it or something like that, if they're willing to do that, it's just, you might get a crappier interest rate, but the amount of garbage that you have to deal with is just, it's almost insurmountable for a lot of people. Like, it's a part-time job. Yeah. Keeping up with what you right. have to submit. And to me, I learned a lot about how our country discriminate silence. And so what I mean by that is I was already really business savvy and tooting my own horn. I'm pretty intelligent. If you don't have those, that upbringing, that knowledge, that privilege, that this, that, and the other, if you're coming from different place than I came from, there's no way in hell you're going to get that loan. No. And so there's a lot of people out there that are in marginalized communities that don't have the exposure to all the tools that I had growing up and through young adulthood and did, weren't business owners previously and don't know how to do it. And they think, okay, I want to live in the land of the free and I want to write my own ticket. I want to own a business, be my own boss. I need to go through the government to do that. And the government goes, oh yeah, you're not qualified because you don't have the, you don't have the ability to know where we don't, we're making mistakes and you have to correct it for us. They're not going to tell you what you did wrong. They're not going to tell you what they did wrong either. So you had a business coach, right? I had a, I have been hyper aggressive and bullying people for the last 15 years of my life professionally. And so you're just going to do what I say, because I found the facts about this and what you're doing is not factually correct. It's objectively incorrect. Your math is wrong. Your procedures are wrong. This is wrong. That is wrong. So you're going to do it the right way. I've got an attorney on the other line. If you'd like to speak with them. Sounds like you should be a business coach. I mean, if the coaching is being a bully, then sure, because that's basically what I did. And I threw so many tantrums and raised my voice so many times and stomped my feet and couldn't believe that they put up with me long enough to actually give me the loan, but well, they did. There is, there's some strategy to that. There is. And what I've learned through this process of owning a business is that work to get it, it does not work to keep it. Yep. And I've had to like really mellow out over the last year and a half. And I've been in some situations where I've been forced to mellow out and nice and beneficial. I've been high strung my whole life, very type A, very dominant, very overseeing and micromanaging. And so that doesn't work. 
for other people very well. And I had to figure out over the course of a year and a half how to like take a step back and go, okay, I trust my employees. I trust my partners. I trust all the people that I work with to do what they're assigned to do. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. If they need help, they can come ask for it. But otherwise, I mean, just trust that this is going to work. So. So it seems since you've taken over the gym, that's been doing great. So what changes have you made in the business and with yourself to make it successful. I'll be very blunt. I inherited a staff that was robbing the place blind and doing a lot of things they weren't supposed to be doing because the old owner was not present. Yep. And I was very present. And most of those people were very weary about me being present right off the rip because they knew that they were going to have change of behaviors. And strangely enough, with me being around, some of them, their income tripled because I was just handing them clients, handing them memberships, handing them this, handing them that. But it's almost like they didn't want their income tripled. They wanted freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. And so I had, a, I had some growing pains the first year with staff. I inherited staff and I currently have one person left out wow. of eight or nine people I inherited, but I have replaced that entire staff and I have a staff of about 15 people now and they're fantastic. So just had some people doing things they weren't supposed to be doing. And I know my faults, but ethics and morals generally are not on that list. Yeah. Those are. Especially in a business. Non-negotiable. Yeah. And so I just had to kind of clean house a little bit. But when I did that, those people that were running for you also had bad attitude. And I am not the poster boy for being Mr. Smiles and happy, but I, had, I hired staff for that. Right. Yep. And so I'm the owner. I'm not like a day-to-day -day manager. And so somebody needs customer service and. I don't have the best look on my face. I can direct them to somebody who does. But when I first started, we didn't have anybody. There's restaurants where you like go in and they treat you like crap and it's kitschy and funny and haha. Yeah. yeah. Somebody designed this business model for this gym around that. Like unintentionally had to fix that culture. Yeah. That's a terrible um, culture. It's just like, why are you here? Why do you want a membership? Ugh, we don't want you. Just did a bunch of junk. And then there were like a bunch of administrative things that were getting tossed under the rug and not taken care of and money just being thrown out the window for no reason. And so I changed all the culture around every single person that walks in the door gets treated equitably, fairly, and with utmost respect. And everybody gets treated the exact same way. That's my expectation. And because of that, a lot of people really are appreciative. I mean, they come in and they're happy to be there. The place is cleaner. We renovated 70% of it. Like the main area is the same, save for I brought in some new equipment and reupholstered some stuff. All the side areas are completely renovated, new construction. They have different purposes and tasks. They have a team that's designed to fill those places out and offer services in those spots. Everybody does a great job. And 90% of the feedback I've gotten has been excellent. Yeah, I enjoy going there. It's clean. It's welcoming. I haven't seen you in yet. I've only been going like middays. Okay. That's the only time that's I generally whenever I dip out. Yeah. So. But I love going in there. Good. Do you think that you're going to expand that gym or do you want to open another one? I don't want to franchise it out to another location. I do want to expand it. I can't talk about how that would work without being a little disrespectful. Gotcha. And pissing some people off. And so just know that the idea is to expand. Yeah. Whether that happens or not, we'll see. The landlord's already on board. So. Cool. I would love to see it for you guys. Yeah, I, th I think we could really use some extra space for a lot of really cool things. One of the things that I really want to do, I have a lot of experience in hormone replacement therapy. I ran a clinic. There's not any clinics in the part of town. So are you currently a nutritionist? Yeah, I'm a nutritionist, but nutrition 
coaching and hormone replacement therapy consulting are not synonymous. Okay. Those are two separate, you're not qualified to do one and then the other simultaneously. Like you have to be educated at both to be able to do it. Okay. And then some of it requires a fair bit of practical application too. Like I'm a competitive bodybuilder. I've been on HRT for a long time. I'm autistic. And so and we'll talk about that a little bit, I'm sure. So that negatively impacts your hormones. So I've needed hormone replacement therapy for a long time. You don't really want somebody telling you, hey, you need testosterone or progestin or whatever, and not knowing how they work or ever experience using them. Okay. And so, but it's a very important medicine. In my opinion, it's a lot more important medicine than the medicine that is being given out right now. That's more of a band-aid to the problem than the solution to the problem. Okay. I did not know that autism and testosterone were linked like that. So here's where we get into some fun pharmacology. And there's a lot of science that relates estrogen exposure in the womb in, in boys to autism and testosterone exposure in the womb in girls to autism. I don't really know how that correlates in, in non-binary people and people that have transgenderism, but I know in like classic two-gender bio, there's a lot of science that links those. And it's real science. It's not this crap vaccine stuff. That's a bunch of garbage. Yeah. So generally what happens is males are exposed to a high level of estrogen in the womb that kind of creates an environment where their body produces a high level of estrogen has very high estrogen receptor sensitivity. And you have generally a fair bit of estrogen, high estrogen base physiological characteristics like wider hips, gynecomastia, potential skin issues, lower testosterone levels, things like that. And that Hormonal imbalance is generally what also links to the dopamine imbalance that is associated with autism and ADHD as well. And so you don't produce proper testosterone levels, then therefore you don't produce proper dopamine, vasopressin, serotonin levels. So you have depression, anxiety, whatever. So it kind of all links together, right? And so for me, the best medicine that I've ever been able to take to manage it without even knowing that I was managing it, because I didn't know I had it for a long time. You knew you had autism? Yeah. I knew I had lower testosterone level. I didn't know why. I was taking hormone replacement therapy. So how old are you? I'm 33. Okay. So when did you find out that you were autistic? 28. Okay. Because I'm 33 as well. So growing up, autism wasn't as well known or talked about as it is today. It wasn't even in the DSM-4 correctly categorized in 1994 whenever I was tested for intelligence and that there was an autism piece associated with it. Cool. So I actually tested for it and they missed it. Wow. So how did you find out? So I have a friend who goes to a bunch of heavy metal concerts that I go to and I didn't know the dude. He just added me and my ex-wife on Instagram one time Yeah, and then started like sending us messages if saying, Hey, I've seen you guys at the shows. You're going to come to the next show. It's a little weird. And I didn't know anything about him. Right. And so we finally like linked up at a show and actually met him in real life. And I was like, okay, this makes a lot more sense. He has some social integration issues. I'm pretty sure he's somewhere on the spectrum and he's just trying to make friends. So instead of being like, this dude's weird, I was like, oh, I feel bad. Let's try to spend as much time as we can with him. Whenever we see him, treat him like a human being, all that kind of being decent people. Yeah. And so got to know him a little bit better. And I saw him post something about how frustrated he was with where I was at in life on Facebook, whenever I had a Facebook, 
And I just been kicking around with the idea of what if you could manage anxiety and illnesses associated with anxiety with more homeopathic remedies like CBD and THC and things like that. So I did a little research just to send it off to him because I already knew what I was talking about. And I was reading like symptoms of autism in that documentation. And I was like, oh, I do that. Oh, that's weird. I do that. No, I don't look at people's eyes when I talk to them. Yep. I had a lot of friends growing up, but I had no girlfriends until I was like 20 years old. I got super stressed out if I felt like somebody was interested in me and I'd like literally just dip the fuck out. Like, all right, see you later. It's just really tough for me to integrate into that world. And then I have a tendency to get really overwhelmed by a varying array of stimuli. What loud noises just make me want to rip somebody's face off. Uncertainty creates a massive amount of anxiety. I have very much been a control freak. Relationships, both friend and romantic, have been very difficult for me to navigate. Just things like that. And I'm just very particular and extremely regimented, which helped with bodybuilding. But I'm looking at all this stuff. I wonder how all this stuff. And so I'm like, okay, how do I find out if I have the thing? Because I feel like I might. Because I was, I took the gifted classes and did all this stuff, but I always felt like my friends were little more equipped than I was. Like I had to try extra hard for whatever reason. So there's this test that you can take and I forget what it's titled. Like there's a couple of scientists and hyphen and whatever. I took it and in 37 through 50 are levels of functionality within the autism spectrum. It's rated one to 50. And if you're 37 or higher, then you're on the spectrum based on this test. And depending on how high the number is, how high or low functioning you are. The lower the number, the higher the functioning, the higher the number, the lower the functioning. And so I literally got a 37, but it was self-reported and there's bias there, right? Yeah. So I called up my former therapist and I said, Hey, I would like to see if I can get diagnosed because I feel like I might have autism. He's like, no, you don't. And that's ridiculous. No, you don't. And so I said, give me the information right here. You're qualified to do this. You have experience. Send it to me take the test, send him back. And he's like, yeah, actually you do have diagnosable autism based on these tests and obsessive compulsive disorder, potentially a little bit ADHD, but you're registering really low there. So it would have been called Asperger's right. 10 years ago, but now it's just called autism spectrum disorder with a high functioning capacity. So I don't really suffer from a lot of like executive dysfunction. In fact, my executive function is actually really high. Um, so I don't deal with that where a lot of autistic people do, but just interpersonal relationships are really hard. It's really hard to navigate stuff. Did you find that after you were diagnosed, it was easier to handle some of those situations? No, no, it got worse. And how it got worse is today. A lot of people are marginalized and today it's very common for marginalized people to be given a break because they probably deserve it. And I went, okay, I have a marginalization. I feel like I should be able to like take a step back and go, Hey, I, you don't know this, but I'm autistic. And yes, I did something that pissed you off, but I don't have full control over some of the things that I, some of the ways that I interact. And so I apologize. Can't guarantee I can fix it immediately, but I'll work on it. And some people that have been close to me and some people that haven't have basically told me, get the fuck over it. I don't care about your bullshit. 
And so that's been really hard to deal with because any other mental disability. That would be hard to hear without a disability. Yeah. Any other mental disability, it would be like immediately, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Or I did know I should have cut you a break, whatever. But with this, it's, oh, you're normal. You pat. Like I couldn't tell, or you're just using an excuse or whatever. It's really frustrating. And so I'm trying to like navigate how much I utilize this as a reason for me not being able to do certain things and asking for acceptance around that and how much I go, I just need to get over it and like, just push through it. Cause I pushed through it before I can push through it again. Before I knew about this, I pushed through it all the time. Right. So why do I need a break now? There's something called mirroring. And so. I'm pretty good at talking to people. I have not always been very good. I can, uh, I can relate to that. Yeah. And so autistic people mirror what they do is they watch characteristics of other people that are well integrated, extroverted, whatever, and they feel them. I feel like I do this all the time. Maybe. And maybe everybody does that. I don't know. I'm just speaking of a place from my experience, like literally any and everything I've ever learned. I've generally learned it by watching somebody else and then mimicking it until I can do it as well or better. Like that person over there looks like an expert. Let me be that level of expert or higher in that specific thing that I admire or find interesting or whatever. Yeah. I was a pretty introverted and still am a pretty introverted person. But when I was a teenager, I was very introverted. And when I fell into doing hair, one thing that I really liked about it was that it forced me to be extroverted. So while I was working, I was an extroverted person. At the end of the day, I got to be my introverted self again, but I liked the challenge of being like a forceful extroverted person. Mm -hmm. And I found, and I still find that I mimic people's like energy or I mimic their cadence, the way that they talk, I tend to mimic it. And even when I was really young, sometimes I would even mimic accents and I would catch myself, but I was like, you know, I was good. So stupid, what? But that's something I've always just done. But it was a, I viewed it as a tool of just like getting out of my shell. And yeah, if, absolutely. If it took me just mimicking people a little bit, okay. But I liked the results of being like a little extroverted. Sure. So you were talking about testosterone related to autism. Did you start taking testosterone and so, notice a difference with? Okay. So hypogonadism is just low testosterone output. And so found out that was a situation. And so utilized medication to correct that and realized that it made me much more confident and extroverted and less anxious about things and less like tortoise shell whenever I get stressed out. It didn't eliminate that, but it made me a lot more like this thing's making me uncomfortable instead of hiding away from it. Let me hack it like a predator is probably not the best way to do it either. But I feel like that was a really turning, big turning point for me and being able to work on interpersonal relationships a little bit better. So the skill I'm still working on is finding a middle ground, right? If I get super overwhelmed, I will literally just go home, camp my day. There's like little spaces that people get in, like actual physical spaces that are small and comforting, things like that. It's a little embarrassing to talk. I, I still have moments like that if something's really overwhelming, but for the most part, if something's bugging me, I just get angry about it and attack it head on and then move on. And I don't stay angry super long. I'm just like, no, fuck this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it done. And everybody needs to get out of my way. And that's just how it is. And so 
like I said, the trick is finding a middle ground. How do you do that while being respectful, while not bulldozing people, while not hurting anybody's feelings unintentionally, but also not hiding away from the problem? Yeah, that's a fine line to walk and something that I'm trying to navigate as a boss too. There you are too. Yeah. Like how do you handle delicate situations with your employees and not be a bulldozing asshole? Right. And so I made a lot of mistakes my first six months in the gym, but I made it with people that were doing things they shouldn't have been doing anyway. Kind of worked out. I have this like mantra. Have you ever seen that episode of Seinfeld where George loses $20 Lane finds $20 and Jerry loses and finds $20? And he's, it always works out. It always evens out. And the girl breaks up with him at the end. He's like, all right, I'll meet somebody new. It's fine. Not a big deal. No matter how frustrated or angry or pissed off, freaked out I get, that's literally my life. And it, it ebbs and flows. I've been through tough crap. But six months later, it's like it never happened. And so for me, part of understanding that I don't need to get so angry about things is losing whatever you're fearing of losing most likely is going to result in you gaining something else. So you're able to look at the bigger picture and mm -hmm. things. So I don't tunnel vision as much anymore. And I've just, I've made mistakes and I've lost things. And so when you lose things, you go, okay, it's the end of the world. I'm never going to be able to do this again. And then a couple of months later, everything is a little bit better. Yeah. And that comes with age. Yeah. And it comes with going through really hard shit, really terrible things happening to you, giving you perspective to yeah. know that it doesn't, it doesn't always suck. You're just in the suck, right? Yeah. Right. And I won't sit here and bore everybody with my story of difficulty, but it has not been super easy for me. So I guess the original kind of concept that I was trying to talk about with the expansion of the gym, yeah, I want to potentially somewhere in East Atlanta, maybe inside the building, if it can get zoned, maybe elsewhere down the street, if it can't, I want to open up a hormone replacement therapy clinic, but I want to gear it equally toward a varying array of communities. So obviously like men are generally your highest volume customer, right? But women also need hormone replacement therapy, especially as they go through menopause. It's really important to maintain health. And then there's a very large LGBTQ trans community in Atlanta that is not represented, that is not being given proper medication, that is not being given intellectually diagnosed medication and doesn't have the opportunity to go through the transition process in a safe and respected way. And that's super important to me. My staff is really diverse. We've got all people of all different types and there's two prongs. Like this is an industry that potentially could be very successful. Like working in that specific niche of that industry could be very successful, but also it provides a service that people really need that are being underrepresented. So. Is there something like that? I mean, there has to be something like there that. There is, but it's usually through like endocrinologists and our, I'm hyper skeptical of the, the American and the worldwide medical industry. It's just garbage. It's a money-making machine and not for the benefit of people, for their detriment. And so like, I don't trust a general practitioner and an everyday endocrinologist to diagnose low testosterone to a born man who identifies as a man, much less a trans person. That's way more intricate. Right. And so I can't tell you how many clients I've sent off and they're, and I'm like, you need to go to a clinic. You need to get your blood work done. You need to get your testosterone levels checked. And like, well, I have insurance. I'm going to go to my GP. I'm like, okay, I'll see you in three weeks whenever they don't prescribe you anything. Hmm. And 
Literally, they go to their GP, they get a referral, they go to an endocrinologist, their testosterone levels are 201. Is right? that low or high? So let's talk about the spectrum. Okay. I brought that up so I could talk. Mm -hmm. The spectrum of testosterone is zero to around 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. Okay. 1,000 is like super high. You're probably on hormone replacement therapy. If not, you're like in the top 1% of naturally occurring testosterone levels in human beings. And this is for men born identifying them. Zero is you're, you produce nothing. You're a 70 year old man who hasn't produced, you're in andropause. 200 is you're a 70 year old man who's still barely producing testosterone. And there are 33 year olds with 200 level testosterone, but they're 201 and the threshold is 200. So the endocrinologist, nope, come back when you're under 200. And then it might never be. <laughs> and then they give them inferior versions of medication because here's the thing. Let me be very direct about this. Blood pressure medication, diabetes medication, insulin, metabolic syndrome medication, mm -hmm. heart medication, all makes pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and doctors a lot of money. And there's an array that you need to take if your health goes bad. Testosterone cures all that crap fast. And it's cheap. And who can prescribe testosterone? Any general practitioner. Yeah. If you take the, the proper blood work and they decide that they want to give it to you or any clinician, yeah. clinics don't take insurance. They don't have to go through the insurance companies. They don't have to go through pharmaceutical companies. They go through compounders, which are generally smaller. They're not like Pfizer. They're like some place out of Tampa or whatever, some mom and pop thing. And so they can be a little bit more lenient with their prescriptions, which it, again, at the spectrum, like one guy at 400 might feel great. Another guy at 400 might feel terrible. Because the guy that feels terrible at 400 used to be at 800, but the guy that's at 400 has been at 400 for 20 years. So it's really about, you got to get some biofeedback too, and you got to ask some questions and then you've got to like test and check. So, okay, you do feel like crap. Your testosterone's on the lower end of normal. Let's give you a small dose. See what happens. Come back three months later, get checked again. Now we're at 800. We feel great. We look great. We've lost weight. We've gotten our A1C down. We don't have peripheral edema anymore, whatever. That solves a bunch of problems. Yep. And literally the, everybody talks about, oh my God, it's steroids. They're going to kill you. So here's the deal. Low testosterone and high testosterone, like testosterone abuse and low testosterone have the same symptoms. Move. Heart disease, pulmonary disease, metabolic syndrome. So do you have to take, is taking testosterone a steroid? Yeah. It, testosterone is know. the original anabolic steroid. Okay. Like it, that's what it is. So what people classically deem as steroids are what are known as derivatives. So they take the paramolecule testosterone, change a carbon here, do something here, add a hydroxy here, whatever. And then it changes what it is and what it does. And that's generally what gets abused. But even so, some of those derivatives are prescribed. Like Anavar is prescribed for AIDS wasting and burns. Nandrolone is pr prescribed for progestin deficiencies in women and burns, things like that. So there are derivatives that are also prescribed in moderate amount to do certain things. People with immunological disorders that aren't HIV, either one of those compounds I just mentioned will boost your immune system to the roof. And that's what's also really frustrating about, we've got all these immunologically compromised people that have to stay in their house, blah, 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 blah. Or you could just give them a medication that makes them not immunologically compromised so they don't have to stay in their mask, but they don't have to stay in their house and wear a mask for it. And you think that having the proper amount of testosterone or would testosterone or derivative or whatever, yep. like some of these derivatives, they do very specific things. Hmm. 
like Anavar will go in and boost your white blood cell count through the roof, where testosterone won't. Anavar will go in and like on a different sector, it will boost your collagen synthesis so that you're not, let's say you're injured or you're consistently having joint pain and you have arthritis or whatever. It'll get rid of that. Interesting. But it's Just, cheap. Yeah. And easy. It's not going to make a, it's not going to make you a ton of money. No. And we got to make money. And so the way to make money is to be complicated mm -hmm. and not solve problems. Just put band in. So what would be the biggest hurdle for you to open up something like that? Zoning and money. Zoning and money. So you just yeah. got to be a medical space. Yeah. So I'd either have to get current space medically zoned or get a space that is already medically zoned and then need investors and you need equipment. You need staff. You need marketing. All this basic stuff yeah. that everybody needs. You have to get a phlebotomist. You have to have a doctor. That doctor has to basically sell you the rights to his DEA card. They have like a, this DEA license that allows them to prescribe scheduled substances and testosterone is a schedule three substance that's a misdemeanor to have on your person without a prescription, which slap on the wrist, whatever the doc and to make it legit, the doctor has to assign their and sell the rights to their DEA card to the clinic that they're working through or consulting with or whatever. And then you need a desk staff and cleaning people, whatever. So right now, if you didn't know what your testosterone level was and you wanted to go get it checked and then you wanted to get prescribed testosterone, how would you do it? I mean, just a general practitioner. I, I'd go to a clinic. I would never go to a doctor. Yeah. I would not go through the American medical industry, not use insurance. I would not use high level pharmacies. And I tell my clients that all the time, stay away from them because they're just going to tell you no, or they're going to give you like topical testosterone that has no bioavailability and doesn't really work very well. Yeah. To, for a man to get injectable testosterone from a doctor, it has to be almost a medical emergency. It's insane actually. So I just, it's, I know I'm probably being, I'm probably hyperbolizing and being a little extreme, but I've literally dealt with hundreds of people in this arena and they all had the same feedback from their doctor. Yeah. Is that something that you always encourage your clients to just get the blood work. Their I, blood work, regardless of what we do with it, get the blood work. I look at things in like a trifecta of importance. You've got training, you've got nutrition, and then you've got hormone analysis. If you don't have all three going at once, if you, if something is off and it's not, it's being neglected or not managed properly, you're not going to see the results that you want to see. You're just not. And I have a lot of, and the main hangups is nutrition. I have a lot of clients, you can go get your hormones checked. And if they're fine, great. If they're not, we can get it corrected. They come in and train like they're supposed to. And then they go home and eat garbage and they see nothing. Right. And it's frustrating, but I can't control that. Right. I can't force food down their throat. I can't be with them 24 hours a day. Yeah. But if they're eating everything they need to eat and they're training the way they need to train and they're just not managing their hormones, I haven't had a whole lot of people give me pushback whenever I really talk to them about the nitty gritty of how it works. Especially if they go get the blood work and come back and I'm like, look at this. This is not good. Yeah. I think most people don't even know how to get their blood work. There's not a, from what I know, there's not an easy way to get it other than. Yeah, no, because that, that's the, the other thing. And your doctor's going to ask you why, and you're going to have to placate to them and make them feel smart to get it done. That's why I always tell people to go to clinics. Yeah. You pay out of pocket. It's a couple hundred dollars. Like a quest type of. Yeah. Not even that. Just like a hormone replacement therapy clinic where they specialize in it, they will contract Quest Labs to pull the blood work. They'll do the phlebotomy. They'll send the vials off in a little box to the local Quest Lab. 
they'll request will run it and then they'll send spit back the information to the clinic and then they'll email it to you mm. and it's like a three-day process where with a doctor you're begging him to get it done and then you got to come back for a second appointment and then they're still asking why you need it and then it's a week to get the stuff back and then you have to get referred to an endocrinologist and you go over there and now it's been a month and then they tell you oh yeah you still don't qualify wow but it's that important to know where your well, levels are at if you've got low testosterone Good luck making any progress fitness-wise or health-wise. Good luck. You're not going to do it. Like very few people do. And you're, even if you do, you're st just think how good you could feel if you had optimal testosterone levels. I mean, a cascade effect of everything. Your ability to regenerate muscle tissue, your ability to regenerate bone, connective tissue, your brain health and function, your ability to focus sleep gets negatively impacted, your metabolism slows down, you put on fat, kills your libido, just everything falls apart. It is one of the most important hormones in the human body because it releases a lot of other hormones. So in my opinion, and this is probably going to piss people off, we could cure a lot of mental disorders by checking people's hormones and regulating them instead of handing them an antidepressant. I think that 90% of people that have depression or anxiety don't need antidepressants or any anxiety medication. They need proper nutrition, training, and hormone analysis. But we're just handing stuff out like candy because it makes us money and it's easy. I've never, I've talked to a few psychologists before, but I've never been asked to take a hormone level test. Yeah. I mean, just for your peace of mind, man. Yeah. I'm a way out of sending you information for somebody. Yeah. I'm interested. I just wanted to know. Yeah. Cause it, I mean, it, again, it's good to know it might mm -hmm. be in perfect health, but then you got the peace of mind to know you're in next year. You can go back and check again. Yeah. It's just, it's the right thing to do. So that's where my thought process is on all that. Yeah. Makes sense. So do you have any, anything else you want to touch on? I mean, I did <laughs> put me in the, it's been a good conversation. Hot, put me in the hot spot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just like. I wonder, you've been in the East Atlanta area for a while. Yeah. And you probably have a fair bit of people who know who you are. And now you own a business in East Atlanta. People starting to recognize who you are. Um, I had the same experience. Like a lot of people know me as the asshole at the door of graveyard. Yeah. Seven years. That's me. Yeah. That's uh, when, uh, <laughs> when you first came in the first Tuesday club, that's where I first recognized you from. I was like, oh, it's a graveyard bouncer. Yeah. And uh, so I have this kind of pseudo negative reputation. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm not, I wasn't a shithead. And it was 20 something. I'm working night. I'm autistic and don't know it. I'm pissed off all the time. I'm sober when everybody else is not. I've been sober for 12 years, 13 now, Jesus. So I'm just sitting there and people want to talk to me or people screw up inside or whatever. And I just don't take shit and don't really want to talk unless something sparks my interest. And so with seven years of that, you develop a bad reputation. And now I'm somebody that is in a position of ownership in the exact same neighborhood next door. Yeah. Literally right. And next door. I have so many people that I talk to that are like, man, for a decade, I hated you. And I never actually took the time to talk to you. Yeah. It's, it's a unique situation where you never really strike up a conversation with the bouncer. 
Right. And I didn't make it easy either. Yeah. Because people would try to talk to me and I'd look and I'm like, why are you talking to me? And I could have been better about that. I think that working nights, we're going to talk about hormones, working night and disrupting your circadian rhythm is probably the worst thing you can do for your body. Yeah. I mean, it, I can't tell you how miserable I was without realizing it. And then it took me four years to get my sleep right. Like four full wow. years to start being able to go to bed at 9.30 p.m. and wake up at 6 a.m. And I had to force myself to do it by taking early clients. And it was still miserable. And it's still tough to this day. But I feel better. And I'm more amicable towards people and more understanding and less rigid. And so I think that's super important too. Something I want to say about you being the bouncer at Graveyard, because Graveyard is a bar that was in the center of East Atlanta Village and it was like in its heyday, the place to go to on this side of town. And you might feel like you have that reputation of the asshole bouncer, but now you get this really golden opportunity because your gym is literally next door to where Graveyard was. Mm -hmm. And when people come in and they see you and they see you as the owner, like now you get the chance to reintroduce yourself. That's the one. That's a good opportunity for you. A lot of people don't get that. They don't. And they, they, when they first see you, they're going to be, they're going to recognize you. It's also the opportunity to reintroduce yourself. And I've had that happen probably 50 times. People come in and they're like, oh, hey man, how are you? I didn't know you own this place. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm doing great. And they're like, wait, you're pleasant. (laughs) You, You are actually a nice guy when there's not super loud, terrible music and drunk assholes everywhere. Right. And Coke and whatever, just yeah. everywhere. And I'm having to enforce a dress code that's probably racist as hell. And I don't like that. Just all kinds of stuff. Like just doing things that I have done a lot of fighting in my life, but I am not a fighter. People that enjoy fighting, I don't know how they do it. Cause every time I've ever put hands on somebody, it made me miserable, like immediate regret, anxiety, just when the adrenaline wears off, just massive amount of acute depression. And I've gotten a lot of fight. I mean, way more than I would ever like to have. And so I don't really, I don't understand people that crave that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's really nice to be able to step back and go, I never have to do that again. Mm. Unless my life is being threatened and walking down the street. I don't have to do that. Yeah. Like not a thing I have to do. I don't have to deal with the negative emotions surrounded by it. And I also don't have to have this like presence of, oh, if you make a mistake, I am going to kill you. Because you know, as well as I do back then, people would come into that bar just to try to make trouble. Oh yeah. They would come in there and just try to press buttons. It didn't attract the most prestigious people. And it was like a whole different slew of shitty people. Yeah. Like he had people coming in from Buckhead because they were slumming it. And they used to be able to step on everybody because the Buckhead. And when you come to East Atlanta and go to graveyard, it's essentially roadhouse. I mean, let's say day. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Between, I don't know if you remember Brett, my boss, but he was just real life. Patrick Swayze, just ridiculous. And with a smile on his face, he'd break your whole hand or your face or whatever and just laugh about it. Walk away. But yeah, it was just, it was wild. So you got those people coming in from Buckhead and then you have people coming in from South side of town, sell drugs. And you got people coming in that live in the village that think it's ironic what's happening. That's what always really got me were the hipsters that are like, yes, I hate everything about this. That's why I like being here. <laughs> so it's just, there's a lot going on in one place. Yep. It was a time in my life where that place, like it represented a lot. I was there all the time. It's, it's sad to see it gone, but also yeah, it's a memory now. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how many, like 
you and I have some degrees of separation, but we know a lot of the same people. Right. I can't tell you how many like lifelong friends I made work in that place. Yeah. And some people I did not like when I first met them. And some people I really liked and now I don't really get to talk to or whatever, but I mean, I made some really close friends in that place. Yeah. Because it was like a trial by fire. We're all being put through this hell together. I drunkenly told my wife that I loved her for the first time at that bar upstairs. There you go. When we were not even dating and both seeing other people. Great memory. Hey, you know what? That may have been the catalyst. Yeah. That's funny. Graveyard. I mean, I have a lot of good memories there. More than outweigh the bad ones. Yeah. But I mean, I guess I bring this up to ask more of a question. Like, how do you deal with the fact that maybe 10 years ago you were a different person and now you're like this pillar of the community and you have a reputation to uphold and you have things you have to do and people that you have to take care of and how do you manage that emotionally and psychologically? Yeah, I'll get to all that. But I do want to say you saying that just now reminded me, you remember the East Atlanta strut? Yeah, still has it. So there was a night that I got blackout drunk at the strut. And the next day I made it home somehow. But this was the very early days of Instagram. And someone had taken a picture of me. I was passed out on the sidewalk in front of Graveyard. And you might even be in the background of the picture. Could be. But someone took a picture of it and posted it. And then someone the next day commented, they're like, the caption was like, strut got another one. Yeah. And then someone tagged me and they were like, I think that's Josh Burke. And I like saw the picture. I was mortified. I'm like, oh my God. Untagged. But that was where I was when I was 20. The 20. funniest picture I ever had taken. You remember Fabian? Yes. So Fabian took this picture one night of this girl that had somehow managed to put her body on the edge of the couch like this and was dead asleep, was not falling over one way or another. She was dead asleep. And I walked up to her and just pointed at her and started laughing my ass off. And he took a picture of it and I've still got it on my Instagram to this day. It's the funniest thing ever. I don't know how she did it. Yeah. It was like some acrobatic feat to get that done. That's amazing. But to go from that to where I am now, I took a lot of growing up. And when I first started dating my wife, I have a stepson named Owen, my oldest. And that, when we first started dating, that took a lot of seriousness going into it and accepting a lot of responsibility. And through the years, I've just slowly started shedding my skin of the bullshit of Mm -hmm. that party lifestyle. And I am not a perfect person and I have made a lot of mistakes, but it's just the idea of just trying to get better every day yeah, and slowly separate myself from that, the bad side of the party culture. So now being a business owner and having employees, having two kids and just being a responsible adult husband, boss, it's, it didn't happen overnight. It's just something you just got to try to do better every day Yeah, because it's been a big transition. Yeah. But the biggest transition was first starting to slow down on drinking and doing drugs. Second was leaving a salon that emphasized those two things and glorified it. Getting away from that was a huge step for me. Then when my youngest was born, that was an even like bigger realization of not only like I need to get my shit together more, but more just like now I have a huge responsibility to shape my boy's life. It's not that just my actions affect other people. It's that the way I 
raise you is going to affect my sons and everybody they affect. Yeah. And just realizing the impact of my actions as a father has turned me into a better boss sure. representative Absolutely. of the community. And now that I have this place and have First Tuesday Club, it's First Tuesday Club with Rob and Sly. That has been the most rewarding thing to do for this community. I love it. I think it's great. I mean, I've gone through a hard time over the last four or five months and it's really helped me center myself on some really bad days. That's great. It's been fantastic. That's so, why it was created. Yeah. And so I don't do a whole lot of talking about my situation because this is a little raw, but I like to listen to other people and I mm -hmm. give advice for a living. And so I may sound like a pompous asshole, but like when I hear somebody struggling with something that I've been through and figured out, I just want to give advice, help. Yeah, that's why it's there and why it, it is the format that it is, where it's just men talking mm -hmm. about their lives and their struggles right now. Because when you hear other men struggling with something, it puts your problems into perspective. Right. You and don't feel alone. You don't feel alone. And that may be selfish. Oh, yeah, there's other people. But at the same token, it's, man, I actually don't feel like I have to be in this little box alone. of comfort. Yeah. Because I legitimately am alone and it's been years. And it was weird, but now, I mean, it's starting to get okay. So I guess I, you mentioned something. I have a question and I'll it's just, it's out of curiosity. I won't get too deep into what my thought process is around it. I'm just really curious. And I also think it's a good talking point. Mm. When you met your now wife, she had a child and you didn't have any children. You, I'm assuming didn't have experience dating people with children before that. Right. Well, give me an outline of what you did to be, try to be as successful and good of a, that parent as humanly possible. I knew that like what I knew, I met my wife when she didn't have kids Okay, and she was with somebody and it was just like a situation where I'm like immediately was attracted to her. Mm -hmm. We are in two different worlds. Sure. And then Owen was, had just turned four when we started dating. So. It was a very intentional decision because I, we had been like, she was always the person that either she was with someone stupid or I was with someone stupid and timing, our timing was just terrible. Yep. And now it's a joke in our relationship of how bad our timing was. Like a rom-com. Yeah. And, but when I could see that this situation was coming where it's like, I think I have a legitimate shot of dating her, but I knew it's a package deal. So it was just very intentional of, I wanted, if we're going to be together, it's got to be like 100% yeah. diving in and it, it has had a lot of struggles, but we've stuck it through and it wasn't easy, but I think because of the level of seriousness up front, that's something that you have to take into consideration when you're dating someone with kids. Do you see yourself? in this for the long run. And yeah. the answer is no. Yeah. You might as well. You're wasting Don't time. Even start. Yeah. You're wasting time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so my, when we started dating, it was very intentional. You know, I'm not fucking around because I want to be here. Yeah. My biggest fear is, and the reason I don't have, I don't have kids is at least in my case, autism is very strong hereditarily. My father is 66 years old Yeah, and is autistic and does not know. Yeah. He has a carbon, co I'm a carbon copy of him. I think he knows now because I am, 
yeah. diagnosed and he's really similar. My brother is the same way. He doesn't. My sister, she looks just like us, but I think she got off scot-free with a neurotypical well, landscape. But think about it. And I'm like, okay, I know how harsh and cruel I can be when I'm upset. I know how rigid I am. I know how thoughtless and lacking of empathy I can be. I cannot always in the moment correct for it, adjust for it, or preemptively push it off to the side. And I know for a fact as a child that my father had those struggles and it was devastating for me sometimes. And I don't really want to put a kid through that. But at the same time, it's like, how do you, instead of going, I can't do this, go, how can I do this and still be a good role model and all that kind of stuff. Parenting is a practice that you literally have to practice every day. And there's the majority of the time of a parent, you look back at how you handled something. You think that you wish you could have handled it a little bit better. And there's very rare times where I feel like, yes, I handled that situation perfectly. And it's just, it's a practice. Sounds like, like the imposter syndrome rolls over. <laughs> it's a parenting big time. There's moments where me and my wife still look at each other and we're like, we have kids. Isn't that crazy? Like we're parents, but it's a practice. And there's the way a child can change you and make you slow down and make you think and make you have empathy. Like it, it is, it breaks my mind. It melts my heart. And it is my children have changed me for the better. 100%. I don't know the type of person I would be if I never had the opportunity to be a father. Cause I know that being a father has changed me fundamentally. Yeah. It's not everybody should be a parent. Yeah, that's true. And I've dealt with a lot being a stepfather with some really crazy situations with Owen's dad, but we'll, we'll get into that, but it's not everyone should be a parent yeah. and people, when you become a parent, it is a really special thing and it is a life-changing experience. Yeah. Something you said, I just had never really registered with me. I have people say it all the time, but it like really hit just now, like the concept of children inadvertently making you better. And like my whole ideology for years has been like, I don't ever want to have kids because I don't want to make them worse. Yep. But it's also your child is an opportunity to impact the future in a right. positive way. And that's what I view, how I view my boys, like raising them is my opportunity to impact the future positively. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really fucking hard being a parent. It is, it's the hardest thing I've ever done to feel like you're doing it the right way. Cause there's a lot of days where you feel like you're failing as a parent because you wish you would have handled a situation better. You wish you would have had a little bit more patience, more understanding and, you know, it, but it, it really makes you face your own shit and your own trauma, your own, how you were raised and how you can change how you were affected as a child from the way your parents raised you and how you can work on those things and not pass it on to the next generation. Yeah. I think that's the key. It's been a lot of work for me, but it's when people say, oh, having kids is great. I mean, yeah, it is great. The amount of work that you have to do on yourself, it's strap in. Yeah. Cause I mean, they're just mushy little squish people. Yeah. Right. 
They'll have an identity for a while. Yep. Their identity is your identity uh-huh. and then the people around them. And so if your identity sucks, then theirs sucks. Mm-hmm. So you have to like really share up the foundation on that. Yep. They are a product of their environment. So I just, I think about stuff like that yeah. with life shifting abruptly for me lately, I've start, started to wonder, okay, what do I really need to do in this world? Like inner work wise, because I have no idea what the next thing looks like. Yep. That's a good opportunity for you to explore that. Yeah. So thought you'd be a, you just said it and I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I got to talk about this. I got to ask about this. Nice. Blake, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Yeah, this has been great. Loved it. Good conversation. Hey, thanks for doing this. Absolutely, man. Really appreciate you. Please enjoy your